Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this very special episode are Sharon Kimathy, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Ruby Hinchliff, our reporter at Fintech Futures. Hey, everyone. It's a podcast summing up the year. Uh, what a year it's been. Uh, so much has happened that we had to call in reinforcements to discuss everything that has occurred. Uh, but there's no need to fix what isn't broken, by which I mean we'll be starting as usual with our week in numbers section this time. However, it is a year in numbers section. Uh, we've all picked the biggest numbers from 2020, which have stuck in our minds throughout the past 12 months or so. Uh, Ruby, you're our honoured guest for this special episode, so so you can go first. What uh, numbers-led story has stuck in your brain throughout 2020? Sure. So I guess one of the, the big stories and numbers that definitely kind of uh, took up my mind for a few months is $150 million, uh, which was the valuation that uh, digital challenger Lannister claimed to to have um, about sort of, sort of six months ago. Um, they were the fraud fighting payments card, as, or at least that's how they branded themselves. Um, but there were so many question marks around this 150 million uh, valuation. I started speaking to them in summer. Um, there are a few red flags, one being that the fintech founder didn't want to speak to me um, and that their press releases were very aspirational, claiming you know they wanted to be a unicorn before they'd even gone live. Um, and yeah, so I, I guess... They announced that they had a 15 million investment from a VC um, investor. Um, they later retracted that, um, but all the while saying we still have this 150 million valuation. Uh, it actually turns out that that's not true. Um, and the whilst the investment is it's a loan basically, so it doesn't reflect that 150 million valuation, but it caused a lot of. Uh, debate among the fintech community, um, and we followed it quite closely to see how it how it evolved. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, we're all we're all aware of it. It's probably going to go down as one of the most memorable, but not how to do it launches in fintech history. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole Lannister saga uh, is sort of the. I mean, it, it lit up Twitter for a few days. It lit up uh, fintech Twitter both commentators, participants and founders all had a good chuckle at it. Uh, it's sort of the issue with new banks or the perhaps the uh, culture that goes around new banks distilled into one single entity. Uh, a lot of aspirations, a lot of claims, uh, a lot of question marks, uh, which are still being investigated. Uh, and there was a more than a little bit of schadenfreude for a lot of people in the industry when uh, the FCA put its its warning out about Lannister not too long ago, which it did retract after two days. Uh, but it's certainly been a, uh, I, it's just a very, it's like, uh, there, there's a famous quote about uh, about the Israelites where they're like, like normal people, only more so. And I feel like Lannister is like a challenger bank, only more so in that it does everything to the nth degree uh, for good or bad, uh, it's just uh, it's a surprising one. Um, but what are your thoughts on Lannister, Sharon? I think for me, it's so strange um, because their Twitter account is still posting, and they add disclaimers with all the the memes that they're posting. However, they're not posting anything about what 
the USP is? Like, what is so unique about Lannister, you know, and, and the fact that they used social media and influencers who are still to this day <laughs> posting about it on Instagram and Twitter. It's just so wild to me um, because then other users who are on Twitter who are just curious as to what this is, then counter post with, I see people posting about this Lannister thing, but no one says what it actually is. It just creates this like flurry of confusion. And also what's weird is that despite all the scrutiny and the controversy around the brand, it still managed to sign up allegedly 100,000 prospecting users on its waiting list and generate more than 7.8 million engagement through its influencer content on Instagram in the first 72 hours. Um, And the company has allegedly attracted 70,000 followers on Instagram and 4.1 million clicks on the company's online app store. But then again, how many of these subscribers are actually going to convert? How many of them are going to actually use this bank in the future? To me, it shows the power of social media and influencers because it creates this buzz and this hype. Um, And I guess it's a trend that we'll be seeing in some of the other stories that we mentioned um, as well uh, following on. But yeah, it's just a, a wild story to me. Yeah, and I I just wanted to add as well, I think it highlights the lack of due diligence that a lot of people did uh, in relation to the to the fintech. I mean, if you look at the the, one of the Instagram influencers, Lord Aleem, who posted the most out of anyone uh, with sort of branded cars with Lannister, you know, across the side. He's actually the son of a convicted money launderer um, and the National Crime Agency called the 32 man ring that his dad was a part of one of the most significant money laundering networks in the UK. Um, there's also question marks above the former VC investor um, because the man who runs it is allegedly potentially, you know, been on Turkey's Interpol. Uh, so there's so many question marks. And I think the fact that companies like MasterCard, um, the fact that, you know, they're, uh, yes, okay, Lannister aren't doing anything, um, you know, against the FCA at the moment because they've put up their, you know, uh, proviso on the website that they're not regulated yet. And so they are within guidelines, but there's all these other questions. And I think that it's so easy to spin up a digital challenger now. I mean, it sometimes seems like every man and his dog has one. Um, and so I think it's important to to do your due diligence as a company. It's not all on the regulator. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. We've seen Modulus say, actually, no, you know, they're not officially a partner of ours yet. We've seen MasterCard say, yes, they are, but they're not directly. And then we've seen other partners say, oh, well, I don't really know what's going on. Just look to the FCA post. Um, so there's clearly not a, an overall standard that companies are following to do their due diligence. My word, the money laundering thing. I mean, the irony. <laughs> oh dear. But it ties in really nicely with Alex's big number of the week. Yeah, or the year rather. You can tell us what it is. Yeah. So my number for 2020 is two trillion. That is two trillion dollars, which is the potential amount of suspicious transactions banks allowed to pass through their systems leaked in the FinCEN files. Uh, for those who need a refresher on FinCEN, uh, BuzzFeed News obtained more than 2,100 suspicious activity reports, also known as SARS or SARs, filed by banks and financial institutions. Um, these were originally submitted to the US Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN, uh, which uh, has the honor of being probably the coolest of the acronyms in the US uh, regulatory departments. Uh, the reports were then passed on to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Now, analysis by the ICIJ found that between 1999 and 2017, these banks uh, had flagged transactions worth trillions in SARS submitted to FinCEN. 
Now, there were 2,100 files listed in the leak, uh, which accounted for less than 0.02% of the 12 million reports sent by banks uh, in the same time period. Uh, now, it's interesting because regulators usually guard their SAR information or SAR information closely. If a SAR leads to an investigation, usually an account will be frozen and the bank placed under a gag order, or alternatively, the account might be left open. The bank might be told to keep this account open so as not to tip off the potential money launderer that something is amiss. Um, there were two sides to this story in the reaction that I had gotten. Um, there were those uh, obviously outraged that banks allowed this amount of money to flow through their systems. Uh, and then there were also those who were outraged the, the SARS were leaked in the first place. Um, people want, saying that it, it jeopardized ongoing investigations, tipped off those who may be wanted for money laundering, mobsters, gangsters, terrorist cells. And according to uh, to BuzzFeed, uh, not, uh, not an insignificant number of people on the top 25 billionaires list. But uh, I think one of the things that, that really stood out to me is that it reveals the sheer scale of the task that the anti-money laundering departments of banks must deal with on a day-to-day basis, as well as um, a few market participants I spoke to saying that it demonstrates the real need for updated technology to ensure compliance. Uh, and I think that we will see a lot more uh, or talk a lot more about the ramifications of both this leak and what it says about the ability of banks and regulators to to process suspicious transactions going forward. Yeah, I think the really crazy thing for me that I've seen about this is the AML and compliance issues, especially when it came to people trying to speak out about it. Um I was really shocked to see that there was zero support. Well, I suppose I say that I'm shocked. It's mainly from the regulator side because when I was listening to some podcasts about this um, and their investigation, it was revealed that some of these people came forward to regulators saying, I think X, Y, Z is happening. And then it's actually the bank's lawyers who would then turn around and hurt the individual. And I know from firsthand experience, working in compliance and AML within a bank, you are seen as the enemy. Like you are seen as someone who's just stopping, you know, their large transactions and stopping them from making money when really all you want to do is just make sure that you're putting in the checks and balances, which are supposed to be there to protect individuals. Because at the end of the day, if you are, you know, just a normal regular person and your pension is tied to some of these things, then you're, you're done for. You know, so for for me, I I really feel for for the AML and compliance people who are trying to come forward because they were really mistreated in this. And another thing is that it's now just completely gone under the radar. You know, like there was all this hype and this talk on social media, like on Twitter and LinkedIn, when this initially took place. But now there's nothing. Like we've heard nothing after that. Um, but Ruby, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I recently was sitting in on a on a webinar um, organized by Finergo and the guy called Graham Barrow from the Dark Money Files was talking about the FinCEN files. And he he said, you know, he was likening it as well, uh, talking about some of the fines that have been issued in Scandinavia and the Baltics are driven largely by investigative journalism action. And then obviously this, you've kind of seen the same with the FinCEN files. You know, he said that, because I think he was helping advise and he talked to um, quite a few of the uh, regulators around the time that all of this came out. And he said that, he was speaking to a lot of the journalists and they found that the czars that were filed 
were for their own previous investigative action. So they were the ones prompting these czars to be filed in the first place. So you've got this weird cycle going on um, where it's actually the journalists that are prompting a lot of this to be investigated in the first place, um, even before the czars are filed. Um, so I think that there's a real um, problem there that needs to be needs to be addressed. And, and I guess the, the webinar I sat in on, the, the overall consensus was that FinCEN won't lead to more penalties because the regulators already had the information. Um, and if they didn't, they clearly weren't looking for it properly uh, or didn't have the resources in place to find it. So I think, and, and the other thing that they, they kind of came out and said was that it's, it's kind of a problem because there's a difference between compliance and then actively trying to fight money laundering. They're two very different things. Um, and because a lot of regulators are still in the kind of compliance focused mindset, they are still quite failing or struggling to uh, actually actively tackle uh, financial crime. And that seems to be a real tension in the industry that needs to kind of shift so that uh, regulators feel like they're more empowered to uh, actually act on these on these financial crimes. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. And I think that's... Um something we will I, I think money laundering is something we uh, it's it's always it's always there i mean the, the fincen files relate to a span of more than 18 years and so it's always going to be a battle i think the the rub will be when technology makes the well hopefully makes the process a lot more efficient and how both sides of the market react to how it's changing things uh, but we have one more uh, year in numbers story uh, from Sharon and uh, I, I actually don't know the 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 correct way to pronounce the the Romanian currency. So I so I'll let you I'll let you go ahead and do that, Sharon. <laughs> yeah, you know I was quickly googling it right now to make <laughs> right as well. I think it's Lou. So Romanian Lou. Okay, if I'm wrong, please don't slam me because that's how it looks like to me. Okay, so um, it's twenty thousand Romanian Lou, which is uh, four thousand eight hundred and thirty-two uh, dollars. Um, so the digital bank Revolut is facing a lawsuit after blocking a customer's account in Romania. Florin Hertuliak, I really hope I, I pronounced his name right. I don't know if I did. Um, so he's a Revolut personal account customer in Romania, and he tried to transfer that amount from his company's bank account to his Revolut account on 9th September 2020. And then he was unable to actually access these funds. And he came forward to me um, and said that it was blocked for five days without any clarification from their chat agents. And he actually showed me the correspondence too. Um, so when I went to Revolut with all of this, um, they actually then sort of revealed uh, a, a little bit more information than they probably initially intended to um, and admitted that the account was actually locked since the 21st of May. Um, so they told me that it was rarely used and it was undergoing a review. So that's why it was locked. Um, but they did hold their hands up and say that usually this should have then been reopened because they just do it for like a, a couple of weeks in order to make sure the checks are, are cleared. And in order to, to do so, they liaise with the customer, which they were doing. I mean, Florin really did send them everything that they asked for. And you could really see that with the chat. Um, and the sad thing is that He's not the first person this has happened to. They are groups 
like everywhere. There's like groups on Reddit, groups on Facebook, um, groups on LinkedIn. You know, there are people in the comments section um, of my actual article who are constantly updating it with their own issues. You know, they say that I had the same issues with them. Since then, I've closed the account. Don't bank with them anymore. My Revolut account was blocked yesterday while making a small transfer to a regular customer. When I try to check, the message reads, please be patient with us. We are reviewing your documents. Documents have been sent to them over two months ago. Just a copy of rental contract. Should this take that long? And they are just honestly, they keep coming all the time. And they do actually bombard me on my inbox too, because there's there's way more than that. The people who have come forward to me telling me that there are other amounts, both low and high, you know. So this is a this is quite the the head scratcher because it's been something that the industry has known for some time. And the regulators, when people complain to the FCA, say, I'm sorry, just take it up with the ombudsman. The ombudsman then just drags their feet, to be honest, because I've seen the correspondence with many of these people. So I really do wonder what are the actual checks in place to make them accountable, because this is not how you do it. This is not right. You know, and I spoke to um, some lawyers as well who said, usually this is not the case. Like you, you can do it for a couple of weeks and you just move it forward. So these people do actually have a case. And I've seen um, another comment that with, with all of them saying that perhaps we should all band together and join in this um, class action. Maybe that's when they'll actually hear something and do something. Um, but what do you think about this, Alex? Oh, Revolut, Revolut, Revolut. Um, I think uh, it's this is this is a, a fintech uh, which infamously uh, claims it didn't turn off its anti-money laundering systems for two months um, over a period of time when a load of transactions went through uh, and they were building something in-house. Um, it's uh, it, it seems to be a and I'm in no way, shape, or form here blaming the consumer. I'm, there's nothing here that is their fault, but it's the 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 rubbing up against this idea of cool new, uh, I mean, banks and echoes because Revolut still uh, in so many ways is not a bank, um, offering services, premium looking services to a, seg- a customer segment that has a lot of money. And when people are moving lots of money, that requires AML checks. And when it requires AML checks, as we've already spoken about already, this is an AML field review, but um they need to be done correctly. And uh, I remember, Sharon, you, you writing in your own report about this, that something the Financial Times had reported was someone who transferred £150,000 into their account from a friend. And uh, this person um, was a lawyer and so was aware that it was a large transaction. So I actually tried to contact Revolut directly to say, I'm transferring a huge amount of money. It is me but couldn't get through because as as a challenger, Revolut doesn't have a telephone number. It has its chat uh, chatbots or virtual assistants. Um, and he, the person in question found it impossible to make any progress on finding what was going on with this transaction or being able to explain it to anyone. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely that case of uh, large, especially the larger names in the industry becoming very, very large indeed and having to deal with large sums of money. Uh, I mean, the, when you start wearing the big boots, the big boy boots of banking, you have to start dealing with enormous transactions. And I feel like in some ways, companies aren't prepared for them. And yeah, you're right. It has been a, 
a big issue for Revolut historically. Lots of people have had issues with it. I mean, we've had, um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll let Ruby talk about this, but um, we've seen examples of people uh, being able, uh, not only unable to access their funds, but being sent over and over again the same uh, the same card. But um, I, I've sort of set you up here, Ruby, but I know, I know that you investigate this one and we didn't really get a chance to write up about it. So I thought you might want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So there was this guy on on Reddit who posted a picture. Um, I can't remember exactly how many cards it was. I think it was about 350 cards he'd been sent um, of other customers of Revolut's cards. Um, and they I mean, they quite quickly, I think, got in contact with him and uh, had cancelled all the cards. But the fact that they'd managed to send hundreds of other customers' cards to one address, uh, one customer's address is is just like such an oversight it just seems you know almost comical i mean it's not comical for those customers who were put at risk but it's just such an oversight um and and yeah we did try and dig into it but the the guy who posted the picture um didn't sort of want to get in contact with us in the end or or kind of you know talk more about the story but he put quite a lot on on reddit through the thread and as sharon touched on before reddit is full of people um talking about their accounts being frozen by revolut i mean i think the sad thing is that the reason why these challenges are, are getting away with it is because like sharon said again it's the time periods like I had a guy, a Revolut customer who had over a grand uh, just frozen for weeks uh, and he was desperate. I mean, he was, he didn't have a job. It was his only money. He didn't have access to it. And he was absolutely desperate. He was messaging me again and again, asking me if I could help him unlock his account. You know, that that's, that's a testament to how, how bad the customer service still is that, you know, these, these people are so desperate. They're trying to get journalists to help them and to unlock the accounts because they're clearly not getting any, you know, communication from, from the, the challenger itself. Um, but I think that what happens is in many cases, even if it's a few weeks, the challenger will eventually get back, back in contact with them and they will fix it and they will, um, you know, make the funds available again. Um, so obviously still two weeks is an unacceptable time period, but because you've got people at the ombudsman and then they obviously go to FCA first, then they pass them off into the ombudsman. So it's like, there's, there's not enough uh, time to kind of see users actually really kind of push against this because Revolut kind of end up sorting out just in time that they kind of think, Oh, well, I've got access to my money again. Uh, I guess I can just get back to normal. I don't want to spend loads of time having to, you know, go through a claim and things like that. Um, but you know, we're seeing, uh, complaints, uh, you know, climb, um, year on year. I mean, Financial Times did a, a great article at analyzing challenger bank models. Um, uh, Jemima Kelly, um, pointed out how, you know, Resolver is seeing thousands more complaints a year, um, for, you know, not just Revolut, but also Monzo. I mean, we haven't spoken about Monzo, but Monzo is also, um, definitely a, a, challenger that's struggled with the same thing of freezing accounts um and you know like sharon said you know groups going up on trust pilot or facebook um making you know the point that you know monzo has quote unquote stolen my money um that's another thing that jemima kelly talks about in her article um but yeah so i think that what's ultimately sad to me is that the customer support still isn't there you know yes revolut has what 13 million customers but if you have 13 million customers you have to invest in the support to go with it otherwise you know that's that's not responsible and and you know we need yeah more checks and balances for that sort of thing Now we move on to part two of the podcast. This is usually where we ask our guests a series of questions about their field of expertise. 
However, we're not going to grill Ruby on this episode, uh, as disappointed as you might be, listeners. Instead, we're going to be talking about the stories, gossip, and trends that shaped 2020 and that we see shaping 2021. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about uh, what were our favorite stories or our top stories we've written uh, this year to reminisce over the past 12 months, if we can try and do that with a with a smile rather than a frown. So uh, first up, Ruby. Um, what's the what's the, the the top story that you've written or covered in in 2020 so one that i really really enjoyed uh writing and interviewing for was um the barclay story i did on the black founder tech accelerator um so i interviewed the kind of woman behind it uh natalie ajaba um she's like the accelerator's head but before that she worked at eagle labs which is part of uh, barclay's accelerator scheme um, and they had a whopping 198 applications from from black founders um, for the accelerator, and I just think it really highlights the need for for such an accelerator. The fact that so many people um, applied, um, I mean, only only 25 are going to get through, but that's because they obviously don't want too many companies. Otherwise, they won't be able to give them the same amount of um, help and, and guidance. Um, but I think what was what really struck me about this story was the fact that Natalie. Um, was the one that brought the idea to the bank. So the bank wasn't the one that came up with the idea. She went to her seniors and was like, I think this would be a great idea. Um, and I think it's just a really nice story to show that how one individual in a big, big corporate company can actually make a really big difference with their voice alone, um, which is is why I really like this story. And there's been a lot of stuff in the news um, about the lack of funding that goes to black founders. I mean, you know, there's a lack of funding going to female founders, but it's even less for black founders. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, and so I don't think it gets talked about enough. And and Barclays have partnered with Founderveen, who um, is a uh, sort of accelerator facilitator, I guess. And they've got, uh, it's run by a black woman, Izzy Obeng, and they also have a team that's largely black as well. Um, so I, I think it's a great example of a, a bank being a bit more forward thinking, not both, not just in the UK, but in Europe as well, because I don't think there are uh, sort of, I haven't seen any other examples of this across the wider continent. Um, and yeah, she talked to me a little bit about the bank as well and some of the, uh, you know, Black History Month initiatives they've done and things like that. And she's been very, very uh, pivotal in, in that too and, and making that a bigger thing and making it more of a difference than, than perhaps it had been in previous years. Um, and, and, you know, when I speak to, I spoke to a, a company called My Atman. Uh, this, I guess, is another story, but it kind of feeds into this story Um which is yeah, they're they're a um, black founded UK uh, challenger bank. I did my research; it does seem like they're the first. Um, there were kind of black credit unions in the UK, um, but there was, there's never been a black founded bank. Um, and yeah, they made the point that what they find found really difficult is is yeah, some of the bias that um, businesses um, have gone through to try and get sort of uh, lending um, products because you know, there is this bias still in the system. Uh, and they really highlighted that. But also from a startup perspective, they highlighted that they found it difficult to get their products in front of investors. Even getting on crowdfunding platforms, they found difficult because they expected them to have, you know, a full-blown built-out product. But I know for a fact that I've seen, you know, companies on these platforms far earlier in the stages than having built their product properly. Um, and so I definitely think there is some bias in the system and in that regard that we don't talk enough about or that and isn't even, you know, 
talked about that much in terms of data either because people haven't bothered to do you know the the research around this so yeah i think i guess we've talked about quite um hard-hitting stories and ones which um you know are really important but i think this is a nice one to kind of um end the year on a, on a good positive note going into the next year absolutely uh it's really nice to have a yeah a nice wholesome positive story to uh to lead us into this section um Sharon, what what was your your top story? Yeah, I suppose mine sort of ties in with that because it's a similar trend. I mean, I'd love to just pick one, you know, but for me, I would probably say my favorite is the October edition. And yes, I know the October edition of the magazine is not one story, but um, it, it was something that I really held closely because it was Black History Month in the UK and there was already so much going on. And I tried to actually do this last year, but I had such low responses and and no one really wanted to come out and talk about this at all. So I am quite happy with the responses that I received this year when um, asking for requests for people to come out and talk about being black in the industry. I, I only had like one article in this last year um, because people were very nervous to come forward. But I'm glad that, you know, now people are starting to feel more comfortable. And if it is just one particular story, it's probably my interview with Keisha Bell, who's the managing director and the head of diversity, talent management and advancement at DTCC. Um, and I really like this quote because she said, um, the walls between my dual worlds crumbled and a real conversation began following this year's events. And I that really just sums everything up for me because it, it is exactly that. Because as a black woman, you are constantly in these two different spaces where one is one of understanding because everyone sort of just knows what it is you're going through. And then the other one is one that you're sort of holding in because you're not really sure whether you're in a safe enough space to express yourself. Um, and this year has really, really shown that, you know, some people can't actually be trusted when it comes to being able to to have that open space and, and being able to have that dialogue. I mean, it was just a, a simple thing that happened this week as well. I, I'm sure by the time this comes out, this might be stale news, but for football fans who are part of Millwall, I mean, the players just had had to bend their knee in order to show respect, which is what they've been doing throughout this entire season. And the Millwall fans booed it. They booed the Black Lives Matter knee. I mean, and then the next day, what do you get? You get an actual racist fourth um, whatever referee. And I, I mean, it is a hard one. It's a hard hitting one, but in order to not end on a downer, I will maybe throw in a funny one because there was an interview with Frederick um, Gross, who is the uh, founder of Black VC um, and also Storm Ventures. And like two weeks later, after I posted that um, interview with him, he's now in the Forbes VC 30 under 30 list. So if I was going to pick one for the clout, it would be that. So at least we can end the high. At least my guy is being out there recognized for, for the work that he's he's doing. So yeah, that's me. I'll try not to be so so down. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, they're both uh, incredible examples of what is an extremely important conversation that needs to be had across all industries across the world and for for the right reasons. And it's 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 just a shame that it's taken so long for these conversations to happen. 
uh, yeah, ext- both extremely important stories. And unfortunately, I'm now going to have to ride in um, completely ruining the mood um, by talking about a story of people at HMRC pooing on the walls. Um, <laughs> no, it's a good one. It's, it's now you're <laughs> uplifting our moods. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Well, yeah, this one goes back all the way to January 2020. Uh, I know someone who works at HMRC and they, they forwarded me on a email sent to those at the com- uh, the, uh, the government company's uh, Manchester headquarters uh, about acts of vandalism, uh, which is probably quite a understatement um, of people working at the office, the Trinity Bridge House office, um, defecating on toilet floors uh, and using feces to write, and I quote, unpleasant messages on the walls to other people. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's it's a crazy one. People have deliberately blocked toilet bowls with paper towels, smeared, and I quote again, bodily fluids on the walls, doors and toilet seats, uh, writing unpleasant messages and taking illegal drugs. More than one member of HMRC staff I, I discovered was involved in the vandalism. Um <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were called reprehensible actions committed by a few individuals with no place in the organization. Um, what's interesting is that uh, it bears the email way back in January bears striking resemblance to another one issued by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, another um, government uh, body which deals with financial services um, from their chief operating officer um, to staff at their new Stratford HQ who asked employees not to defecate on toilet floors or to uh, verbally abuse catering and security staff. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it's just, it, it sticks in the mind, this story, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, one, it was like the first, my, first of my exclusives this year. Uh, the second one, just the, the sheer, how ridiculous it was. Possibly the third reason is that when, when it was shared on social media, there were plenty of people who came back and said, oh yeah, that's like, I work at HMRC. This has been a long running thing. It's traditional to, to apparently to to defecate on the floor of the toilets if you don't like a certain piece of government policy. I mean, I, I think that's the reason why I picked it. It was the first thing. As soon as it was a story that sticks in your mind from over the year, it's definitely this one. <laughs> that is that so is funny. Nasty. <laughs> nasty. Gross. I mean, I, I think there was one about the FCA as well, because I have a friend as well who works there. And I was like, is this you? <laughs> Did you do this? <laughs> And she was like, no, it took place on the sixth floor. Leave me alone. Um, on the sixth floor. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. We know I mean, which one H- it is now. HMRC is building a new office as well um, in Manchester, which is supposed to move. Uh, they're, they're basically building what they call 13 large modern offices, making it easier to collaborate and work flexibly. Um, so who knows if there will be more dirty protests about their, their new buildings. Um <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, this sort of this sort of uh, tailors in nicely to to the next thing we're going to be talking about, which is which is gossip. Yes, that's what I was, was going to add to that. It was like we've just been talking about little uh, gossip that we get on our our WhatsApps with our friends working in fun places. Uh, but we have a segment called Fin Talk of the Town in our magazine, and it's a fly on the wall take on the fintech glitterati gossip. So, guys, what's been the most salacious piece of goss you've come across this year? Alex, I'll start with you. 
Uh, you see, I, by my nature, I tend to try and avoid most of the the uh, the ins and outs of the industry and how uh, uh, so much like a high school cafeteria, the fintech world can be in terms of cliques and back talking and things like that. I did want to, I did, I did think about mentioning um, something about other podcasters in this industry being uh, scared of us launching what the fintech, but I'm not going to do that one. Um, I think it's not so much a behind the scenes on this one, but I just, I think the biggest piece of gossip was the the whole Monzo versus Starling thing that occurred in the middle of the year when Anne Bowden launched her her book. I mean, it's not so much behind the scenes, me being sent WhatsApp messages, but I just thought it was so uh, indicative of like how, uh, yeah, how cliquey the industry can be sometimes. Um, obviously nothing on Anne Bowden wanting to get a bit of publicity for her tell-all story, but immediately it turned into tribalism. Whose side are you on? Are you on Tom's side or Anne's side? And then it brought in other factors about, you know, why people, um, are on Tom's side and not Anne's side, uh, you know, uh, questions around gender and, uh, privilege and backgrounds and things like that. And I feel like it was, uh, it's a story that I've known um, or I've known scant details of for a long time. One of my former editors knew Anne Bowden quite well and was privy to the ins and outs of what happened when those who left to form Monzo left what would be Starling. Uh, so it's something that I'd seen coming for a while, but I didn't expect it to, uh, I guess, blow up in the way that it did. So I'd say that, that was probably the most gossipy thing in in the way that people I knew who didn't know so much about fintech uh, they just happened to have a starling card or a monzo card and were like oh my god look at all this like gossip it was uh yeah it was definitely a highlight yeah for sure and, and what about you ruby what's been a highlight goss wise for you so yeah yeah i guess it kind of in some ways feeds off off alex's gossip um and i, I and i don't know if it counts as gossip it was it was something that people have been kind of speculating on on twitter um, but basically, uh, Anne Bowden, Starling CEO, spotted a um, sort of list of job postings um, for actors for all the fintech CEOs. Um, so not only was it, uh, you know, they were looking for someone to play her, they were looking for someone to play Tom Bloomfield, uh, Revolut's Nikolai Stronsky, and then N26's Valentin Stolf. Um, and it, the, the filming was going to happen in Kent and £150 a day. Um, and it, it mentioned sort of production dates and things. Um, and then Anne later said, oh, well, a journalist actually DM me and says that their pu- publication is working on a, on a musical um, around it. And so, yeah, um, I'm a bit confused as to who would kind of invest, what publication would invest this sort of money into such a gimmick. Um, oh, but- I have one or two ideas. <laughs> I am kind of resisting uh, to to point the finger, but um, yeah, I think that like, like Alex has said, he's kind of set the scene, hasn't he? That there is a lot of gossip and a lot of things to bring out and you've still got the whole Monzo side of the story that just hasn't aired yet. Um, So yeah, I can imagine that our fintech scene uh, enjoying a a musical around the, uh, (laughs) around the founders. I think it would be very bizarre to watch um and yeah well i'm intrigued to, to, to find out more i think that more and that will come out next year um but more importantly i want to know who's going to get paid 150 pounds a day to be some of these ceos um <laughs> i think it's a pretty <laughs> big 
Yeah, it's like such a niche market as well, you know, like who, who's this for? <laughs> Where are they going to air this? Um, but my goss um, is not actually tied to the Monzo and, and Starling Bank saga. Um, mine actually just happened last week where um, some ex-Stripe person um, decided to take it on Twitter to really show his entire ass in terms of what he feels about women. Um, and he essentially said, startup advice, don't hire a hot girl before you find oh, product no, market fit. Yes, that guy. I mean, <laughs> there, was, there was a lot this year, but that one to me really topped it because it was like, really? And then he followed it up with like the longest thread about this like, really mild work-based affair and it was clear that he was just super into it and she wasn't really that much into it so yeah it was weird awkward it showed how like misogynist some of these spaces really are um and that for me really uh topped the cake um in terms of of goss but I'll try and turn it now to, to my next question to you, Ruby. Um, you know, you cover a lot of our fintechs and startups. Tell me, what's been the most interesting fintech you've come across this year, one that you might actually genuinely use? So I've gone for a bit of a rogue one. Um, I interviewed a company called OneBanks. Um, they're a Glaswegian startup. Um, and I interviewed them back in July. Um, and they're kind of still kind of amping up. I don't think they've quite launched it. They're still demoing and things. Um, but essentially their idea is to try and sort of capitalize off the fact that banks are shutting lots of branches. I mean, we've seen this year, um, you know, more than a third of UK branches have closed in the last five years. And then this year has even, you know, sped that up even more. Um, and so, yeah, I think that they they basically, what they want to do is bring the branch to spaces that people are going to continue using for, for the foreseeable future. So basically putting kind of branch kiosks in supermarkets um, so that people can access them more easily. I mean, they have found that in some areas of Scotland where uh, a lot of bank branches have closed, there's just no longer a branch available for, for a lot of communities. Um, and so that that's their um, kind of USP is to try and obviously help those who are vulnerable um, to what we are advancing towards, which is a cashless society. Um, because, I mean, the access to cash review from 2019 found that 9 to 12 million people just won't be ready for a branch of cashless society. So it's definitely a big opportunity. And what will happen is that these uh, branch kiosks will be... Uh, they'll be bank agnostic. So, you can, you know, if you, if you banked with Lloyds or if you banked with Starling or Revolut any of the incumbents or digital challenges, you'd be able to use that kiosk. Uh, and so you'd be able to use it to pay your money, to withdraw money. Um, and that's a big thing, right? Because it also means that these digital challenges will be able to uh, tap more business customers because yes, we're moving to cashless, but there's still a lot of businesses out there who don't want to be cash cashless. And so would still want to, you know, pay in their money each month um, or each week or however often they do that. Um, so I think that it, it's a big big game changer um, because it, it really does start to even the playing field. And, and I can't imagine using these kiosks um, when I do my weekly shop um, or, you know, it's, it's just because it's way more, it's a lot easier and more, you know, accessible than uh, having to think, right, where's my nearest bank branch? If I wanted to do something, um, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't really use my bank branch anymore, but 
if it was in a more convenient place, I'd probably be more, uh, you know, I'd want to use it um, for things like, say, you know, talking about, you know, if I wanted to do something with my money that's sitting there, like investment base or, or whatever. I think the, the, the challenge is hoping to train up people that on these kiosks so that they can help with the more complex stuff as well, not just the paying and money and, and getting money out. Um, so yeah, I, I think that they they could be on something, and it's not just necessarily about me using it, but about this big proportion of the world or well, of the UK at least at the moment that uh, still use cash. Yeah, that's a really good one, actually. It's it's such a helpful initiative. Um, and Alex, you're our regulation and also core banking tech expert. So what's one been the most innovative regulatory policy you've come across this year, one you genuinely think that will help the industry? And two, what's been your top core banking initiative and implementation you've spotted? Well, first off, thanks for calling me the regulation and core banking expert. Uh, can't wait for our editor-in-chief, Tanya, to immediately dispel whatever I say uh, <laughs> when it comes to core banking. However, um, well, 2020 wasn't really a – it wasn't the same in terms of industry-shaking regulation uh, that 2019 was, but many things uh, sort of ticked over. Uh, MIFID II saw its second birthday, uh, and you could say uh, it's becoming very business-as-usual for firms when it comes to their transaction reporting now. Uh, saying that we have seen some relaxations from the regulators due to the pandemic, specifically from the EBA and the EC when it comes to MIFID 2. But I think what really stood out for me was uh, when the EBA came out this year, it's not necessarily a regulatory policy, but it's perhaps the groundwork for one. Uh, the EBA came out this year and said that they wanted to create a single set of rules governing, yes, I'm afraid it's money laundering again, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing across Europe. So uh, under the current guidelines that all EU member states abide by, they have a little bit of wiggle room, some room to maneuver when they interpret and transpose EU-wide AML laws. Um, this flexibility has often led to countries failing to meet their deadlines um, in applying, especially the EU's fifth anti-money laundering directive, or AMLD5. Uh, among them, Cyprus, Hungary, uh, the Netherlands, Romania, Slovenia, Spain, all of them have had warnings for, for lagging behind and not transposing things properly. And so regulators across Europe appear to have reacted to the huge money laundering scandals we've seen in the recent years, the 200 billion in the Balkans, largest money laundering scandal of all time, perhaps, um, with the idea of central control over AML laws. Uh, it's been floated by various members of various EU regulators recently, and even by European Central Bank members. Uh, interestingly enough, when I've ever spoken to uh, people at regulators in Europe, um, there's been a... Uh, a surprising amount of pushback on the idea, uh, mostly and probably unsurprisingly from those in the UK. Uh, but I think it's an idea that's going to be pushed more and more in the future uh, as, the, as the EU looks to grapple with a series of scandals that are hitting closer and closer to home in terms of the uh, institutions involved and the figures involved. Now, as for core banking, uh, I actually am putting together our top 10 core banking stories of this year right now. And for me, looking at it, it's not really been another another, another thing. It's not really been another year of major deals. Uh, and we, we all know that implementations can be delayed for any number of reasons. Uh, sometimes it feels like you know the wrong person breathing in the wrong direction in the wrong room adds another few months to any big change. Um, by their nature, you know, someone sneezes and six months gets added to the, the deadline. 
So I, I'm, I'm not surprised we haven't seen many major go lives or selections this year, considering the, you know, the pandemic and the ramifications of that. Uh, I think there's plenty of tick, plenty smaller deals have ticked on though, and, and many vendors in the space have been crowing about their ability to complete implementations remotely and virtually uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I would imagine, uh, not I wouldn't bet money on this, but I imagine that there have been a lot of deals done during this year that we don't know about yet, even as we record this podcast, as a lot of institutions try and swing more towards digital banking in reaction to customer demand. Uh, and hopefully, uh, for for my for my job as the core banking expert, uh, Tanya not included, um, we'll see some big deals to report on in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And my final question is one that's more forward thinking. So, what topics, segments, company, business ideas, etc., do you think will be the talk of the town next year? I'll start with you, Ruby. Yeah, so I think that open banking payment initiation will be uh, something. I mean, we've already started talking about it this year, but I think we're really going to see it sort of take off next year um, and start to really challenge the card ecosystem. I've I've had a few uh, interviews with different fintechs and um, sort of more sort of incumbent players as well about this. And I think the, the consensus is that we will really see payment initiation challenge, um, the big card issuers next year. I mean, we've seen Visa and MasterCard um, try and buy their way back into the payment stack that they anticipate is going to be, you know, <laughs> not needing them because um, we see MasterCard by Finicity. And then obviously we've seen the uh, Plaid deal with Visa is still not sure whether it's going to happen. The Department of Justice are, are trying to dismantle that one. Um, on competition concerns. Um, but I think, yeah, next year we're going to have secure customer authentication um, and I think that will really see cards and payment initiation on a, on a pretty level playing field to really compete with each other. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how consumers respond. I mean, I, for one, know that I'd rather initiate payments from my bank account than faff with a card or numbers um, and, and who knows, maybe the pandemic has really helped people to, to use things like QR codes, which are, you know, the dominant payment method in, in Southeast Asia, for example. Um, so I think that it's two things, I guess. Payment initiation was even happening sort of pre-pandemic, but I think that will that will really be a thing next year. Um, but I think also throughout the pandemic, we've seen people getting used to using things like QR codes um, and that might, you know, the, the, the customer behavior that that's, you know, imparted in people could then see that become something that's more, people could imagine that being a, a payment method in the UK next year or in the next five years. Um, so that would be my 2021 prediction. And what about you, Alex? Uh, as much as I, I, I don't want it to be something we talk about a lot next year, it's definitely going to be uh, buy now, pay later. It's We're seeing the enormous amounts of traction that these companies are gaining, uh, and especially this year. Uh, I, I'm not particularly sure uh, what it is about the pandemic that has exploded their popularity like maybe perhaps people just not having as much uh, liquid cash available and still wanting to you know buy uh buy nice things and with christmas happening i'm sure there's they're going to get an extra boost in terms of people buying things but the buy now pay later discussion is ongoing regulatory investigations ongoing 
uh, pr- the predatory nature of it, determining whether it is indeed predatory is ongoing. And so I feel like it is a topic that's going to be forefront of a lot of discussions next year. Uh, a lot of these big companies, um, there are some, uh, and there are some out there who who have established themselves as um, solely for the purpose of improving credit, which is which is a great which is a great idea. But others, which have you know made a lot of money from this uh, innovation, if you want to call it that, and essentially you know credit, but not really, um, have been defending themselves to the hilt. And I think next year we will see a continuation of this discussion, and I think it will ramp up to a certain degree. I think you're definitely right, Alex, because I was just writing up a story today on Capital One um, banning users from um, the credit card users from uh, sort of using it for buy now, pay later uh, products. So I think that we're already seeing it even before the year starts that some incumbents are really pushing against it because they feel like they're taking on too much risk by enabling users to, to pay uh, using those sorts of solutions. Now we reach part three of the podcast, which, as everyone knows, is the fintech jail. Rather than having to listen to us uh, moan about things we've brought with us, we decided to summarize and pick out uh, our favorite entries into the jail to discuss, uh, perhaps even letting them out again. Who knows? Um, I think perhaps we'll, uh, we'll we'll start with Sharon on this one, um, as uh, you have been the curator of all of our entries so far. So which one do you want to talk about first? Oh, well, I, I'd probably say artificial intelligence purely because it came up three times. Um, and I'm pretty sure the two other people who uh, raised it up as an issue didn't really know about how frequently it's cropping up. Um, so I, I mean, the thing with artificial intelligence and, and the first time we said no to it was because they are people who do use that phrase or, or words or whatever um, in a meaningful way to convey exactly what it is that they are trying to sell or a problem that they're trying to help you with using artificial intelligence. So we were just watching it. Um, and when it came up again, we, would, we were like, you know what? Fine. We'll just we'll look at it and we'll monitor it for like a year. Okay, I'll get a year imprisonment. And then it came up uh, a final time um, with uh, Manuel uh, Silva Martinez from Muro Capital, who said, I think there's so much to do to change financial services, but you don't need super deep tech to reinvent things that are broken. It's basic technology with a good design to do things the way you do things in a contemporary manner, as opposed to old tech that solves the cases for businesses. Um, and he also cited how he gets pitched by entrepreneurs as well, and they use it as a buzzword, and he's a bit put off by it um, because he's like, is that really what you're doing? And I mean, is that really solving the problem? So yeah, for me, it's artificial intelligence purely because it, it does seem like there is a trend out there where people cite that they are using it in their technology as part of a pitch um, in order to get investment when really that is not the case at all. So yeah, that, that's that's me. Excellent. I think that uh, AI is going to be an interesting one. Um, everyone and their dog wants to use AI and no one really understands what AI is really at the end of the day. A robotic process is often being mislabeled as AI these days. And it looks like it's the new fad, uh, technology fad, which is sort of brings me on to 
the one I wanted to talk about, which is uh, uh, blockchain. And I, I remember at the time, uh, I, th- I think I, I remember at the time saying something along the lines of putting blockchain in the fintech jail kind of feels like kicking someone when they're down. Um, and that the technology has, it had its heyday uh, many years ago. Well, not many years ago, two or three years ago. I remember writing every other story about blockchain when I was a reporter back then. And uh, I feel like people always say that it's a, a a solution looking for a problem, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it is a solution that people try to apply to too many problems, when in fact it really, really has a lot of good use cases in things like um, the connection of supply chains, documentation, um, secure sending of you know a, a verification across things, digital identity even as well. Um, and I feel like the problem is is that it got sort of it, it was done to death to the point where people were sick of it. Um, it it sort of went through this sort of Game of Thrones arc where it, it was doing fantastic. Everyone really loved it until it had its own version of season eight and then it disappeared off the face of the earth and no one talks to it, talks about it anymore. And I think that uh, under the new brand, because no one likes to talk about blockchain, they always call it DLT these days, we might see uh, it actually be a solution solving problems. So that, that's that's why I, I think if uh, if someone mentions it again next year, maybe I'll try and get them to to pull it out of the jail. But um, Ruby, which, which one caught your eye? Sure. So the one that caught my eye was, was disruption. Um, Theodora Lau is the one that um, picked this one up um, from unconventional ventures. And I, I really liked what she said about it, which was that um, people in this industry have been driven to burnout by endlessly trying to disrupt and spending all this time at work and showing off with all the new things they're doing. Um, and I think that really speaks to, to, what I thought when I, I saw that word. Um, you know, I recently uh, wrote up the article around uh, Nordigen's uh, new open banking platform, which is uh, free. So one of the first free open banking platforms out there. And, you know, I was talking to some people to get some comment on it. And the the kind of consensus was it's far too early to be disrupting a market that is only less than three years old. Um, and so, you know, whilst there were some people on Twitter being like, oh, this is great, like less than three years and you're already disrupting the market. This is brilliant. But hang on. No, it's not because, you know, you've got all these companies that are still struggling to to monetize it properly. And if you're just going to throw in a, a free alternative, it's going to become very difficult to do that. Um, you know, some of these companies are putting hours and hours and, and millions into this sort of stuff. And, and to just kind of undercut it with a free alternative is going to not disrupt the market in a positive way, but, it, but in a very negative way. Um, so I think that sometimes disruption can be held up as great no matter what, but actually sometimes it can be really negative and, and have very bad effects on, on markets, um, especially when you're disrupting a market far too early. Um, and I think, yeah, exactly what uh, Theo said, that um, it kind of it drives this uh, kind of, I guess, attitude that you constantly have to be iterating something. And yes, whilst that is true, you sometimes need to leave each version of something to really live out its full life before you introduce another one. Um, because if you iterate too soon, too early, then that could really have detrimental effects to the entire market. I mean, if you look at, say, Google, and they're constantly trying to uh, disrupt themselves, but they often release products far too early um, before it's really going to to work and to have any kind of adoption. Um, and then they cancel the product and they bring it out later. I mean, we've seen that with their sort of uh, credit card 
um, you know, a bank account thing. They, they did try and do that quite a few years ago, um, but no, no one wanted it. So now they're doing it again. Um, so I think that, yeah, disruption kind of comes into this bigger narrative of um, iteration. And whilst it's important to iterate, you, you don't want to iterate too early. Fantastic. And if anyone wants to see all of the uh, the season one FinTech Jail uh, nominees and all the jail time, I'm looking through the list right now. And we've we've been very harsh to some of these. There's, there's life with no parole, there's 20 years, 30 years. That's brilliant. Well, if uh, you can have a look at them and, and, and maybe leave a comment and let us know which ones you might want to to uh, us to drag out of the jail in season two. But as for this episode, that's uh, that's all we have time for for this this yearly roundup. So thanks to Sharon and Ruby for joining me. And before we sign off, though, uh, as per usual, we're going to plug socials and websites and interesting projects. Uh, Ruby, have you got anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, well, in keeping with this uh, podcast, um, we're going to be publishing um, a our fintech review for the year, um, and that will be accessible via our website. And that kind of covers a whole host of topics that we think are the most interesting that we've covered this year. Um, so please do have a read through that. I've, I've got loads of commentary from the industry on that. Um, it's, and it is an interesting read, and, and it touches on a, a real wealth of, of topics. So yeah, it'd be great if you could give that a read. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and Sharon, what about you? As usual, you can find me at Fintech Kits on Twitter. That's Fintech, regular way to spell it, and Kits like football kits. Football's been a hot topic just a couple of weeks ago. And also, we have our banking tech magazine that's going to be coming out. Uh, so please do keep a lookout. That will cover both December and January. And as Ruby mentioned, it does have our year in review. So please do check that out too, um, as it will be supplementary to it. And we will be producing our uh, Fintech jail list two once this comes out so so do have a, a look at it and uh see what ones you might want to take out next year fantastic uh as for me you can find me on twitter at ad hamilton 91 and on linkedin just by searching my name if you want to find ruby by the way because she was too modest to to say her to say her twitter ad is at ruby hinchliffe <laughs> on twitter uh Thanks. get Get up, pushed up to a thousand followers um, as soon as possible. Uh, also, uh, just a quick mention as well: the Banking Technology Awards are happening the week the week we are recording this. Um, so please remember to uh, check that out on our website. You can watch it uh, even after it's gone live and enjoy the presentation from comedian Tom Ward. Uh, if you like this podcast and you like our other episodes, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. And you can find FinTech Futures on our website or on Twitter at FinTech Futures or on LinkedIn by searching the name. Uh, we always really appreciate any feedback on everything from the podcast to the website, to our reports, to our uh, surveys, everything and, and everything. Uh, it's been a crazy year. Uh, we'll see you in 2021. Uh, but until then, goodbye. <laughs>